It's time now for Money Matters with the Lewis family, Doug, Linda, and Deborah, owners of Lewis Financial Management, a Raleigh-based family-owned financial planning firm providing investment and financial planning advice since 1983. Doug and Deborah are certified financial planners, CFPs, who can answer any of your questions about investments, retirement planning, and estate planning. Now, here's Doug, Linda, and Deborah. Investments offered through SFA, Inc., investment advice through Lewis Financial management, SFA Inc. and Lewis Financial Management are not related entities. Hello, North Carolina. This is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner, once again welcoming you to Money Matters with the Lewises, Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Money Matters has been providing you with a personal financial hotline for all your questions about investments, estate planning, tax planning, money management, and retirement planning for over 30 years. Well, good evening, North Carolina, and thanks for joining us once again on Money Matters with the Lewis family. This is Linda Lewis. And this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. And this is Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. Well, financial planning is everyone's business, and still for most folks, money matters are just a big puzzle. Folks have questions about planning for retirement, planning for a child's college education. They don't know the difference between financial planning and money management. They want to know a lot these days. They want to know what's a mutual fund, what's a limited partnership, what's a REIT, what's a will, what's a living will. And yes, it really can confuse you, but you're not alone. Because in a world crowded with new investments, changing tax laws, rapidly evolving insurance products, and volatile economic cycles, more and more people are looking for clear direction in their financial lives. And yet, unfortunately, the busier and the more successful they are, the less time they have to sort out their financial affairs, and people are asking, is there any solution? Well, yes, Doug, there certainly is a solution. Out of this increasingly complicated financial environment has come a new breed of professionals that are trying to solve people's money puzzles, and that's the Certified Financial Planner. It's the certified financial planner who offers something that people don't get from the traditional stockbroker, money manager, accountant, insurance agent, or bank trust officer. And that's a way to consolidate all aspects of people's financial affairs into one financial plan. It's the certified financial planner who knows how to pull together all six areas of a client's financial life. Doug, I think for many people, the first area of financial planning is cash flow planning with questions about their emergency fund, their mortgage, their credit cards, and reducing their debt. Well, yes, Linda. And yet for many people, the second area of financial planning is retirement planning. Those who are working want to know how to compute what they'll need to live on during retirement and how much they should be saving for retirement. They want to know what investments they should choose from the choices in their company's 401k plan. Others are retiring and have received a lump sum payout option from their company's retirement plan, and they want to know, should they take it, and if so, how should they invest it? Well, Doug, the third area of financial planning that must be dealt with is estate planning. For most people, over their working years, their estate has grown. How can they reduce their estate taxes? And they wonder, are their simple wills sufficient, or maybe they should be considering the complicated world of trusts? If that's the third area, Linda, the fourth area of financial planning cannot be overlooked. This is tax planning. People are interested in both tax reduction strategies and tax reduction investments. Home mortgage interest, charitable giving, tax shelters, tax-free bonds, questions about capital gains taxes, estate taxes, gift taxes, and how to sell real estate tax-free using trusts. What a confusion. Well, Doug, we can't forget the fifth area of financial planning, which is insurance planning. How much life insurance does a family really need? Do they have too little insurance or maybe too much insurance? Should they have whole life, term, or universal? Should they have long-term nursing care coverage? You're right, Lynn. And of course, the sixth and most important area of financial planning is investment planning. Here, the questions never stop. What's the best way to diversify my investments? Is now a safe time to invest in stocks? What about bonds? What kind of stock mutual funds? REITs? CDs? Gold? So, Doug, it seems that at last it's time for people to understand that a certified financial planner is really the only one who can tie together all six parts of their financial puzzle.
Well, Doug, people certainly need to have a better eye as to how they find a financial planner, right? Or what what are the guidelines? You're right, Lynn. This is the type of thing we've been warning people about for years. You don't just get a financial planner because it's someone you've heard about while playing golf with your buddy on the golf course, or it's a good friend of so-and-so that you met at a cocktail party. That's not the way that you select a financial planner. There is a significant danger in getting bad financial advice. Well, what are some guidelines that you could suggest to some of our listeners regarding finding a financial planner? Well, there are a number of ways. You should definitely find out how the planner is compensated and where the money is going to come from to pay the planner's fees. Then the next thing is you should ask for regular reports on the performance of investments. These are the status reports. Quite frankly, Lynn, if a planner doesn't provide ongoing status reports, then I don't think you're getting planning. Is it because they're, they're using a salesperson or what? Well, typically, consider it, Lindy. You go to a place and a number of things can happen. Let's assume they really produce a financial plan for you. That's a document. That's a snapshot of where you're at right now. But then what about what happens afterwards? There are planners that go ahead and just take a snapshot of where you're at today And the purpose of that snapshot is to basically sell you some investments. That's something to watch out for. That's a sales tool. But the important thing is not so much what you do when you start with a planner, but it's how things progress, these ongoing reports, if you're getting ongoing planning. It is important to quiz your planner and find out information about the planner, and then also to have some proof of uh, how they're working for you, correct? Right. So what you want to do is you want to see a sample set of ongoing performance reports, and you also want to look at the man's or the woman's background, and that's through the ADV. Now, the ADV is a crucial issue, Lynn. The ADV is the document that discloses everything about that individual. Exactly. The ADV is the form that you definitely should ask for when selecting a financial planner. If a person says to you they don't have one or they don't have to file one, then you need to understand that they are not offering financial planning advice as their main profession, and you should not deal with them as a financial planner because the ADV is required by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Now, it gives a total disclosure of the person's history and past. So that's very crucial. If a person doesn't have one, then you're not dealing with a financial planner. So it tells you about their background, their education, their fees, and their experience? Right. It doesn't tell you if he's good or bad. It just gives you their fee schedule, their biographical and how they do their work. One thing that you might want to look for, which to me is important, is what relevant education or credentials does the planner have in the planning field or the financial services industry? Education may be as important as experience or investment history. For example, is the individual certified? Has he gone through a two-year educational program to become a certified financial planner? I think that's very important. Another thing would be, how long has the planner been doing total financial planning. How long has the planner been working directly with clients in the comprehensive financial planning process? Isn't it important also to to know what did the practitioner do before he or she became a financial planner? It appears that most financial planners come from fields related to financial services, right? If they're real planners, then you definitely should find that out. What did the planner do before they became a financial planner? What about asking to see a sample financial plan? Now, this to me is crucial. If it's a financial planner, they're producing a plan. I do not accept the fact that we're going to get a canned plan where you fill in a little questionnaire and it's going to be sent off to uh, some service in New York and you're going to come back and get a computerized financial plan. That's not financial planning. You should see a sample financial plan and find out what it's going to look like and is it going to be produced by the planner, him or herself. Okay. It's important also to find out what are the practitioner's areas of expertise, correct? That's right, Lynn. I think that's also important because ideally you're looking for someone who has experience or expertise in investments, taxes, insurance, estate. You want to find that there are specific areas that meet what you're looking for. The numbers to call during the week at the office are Area code 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. And if after listening to the show, if there's some question that's been on your mind that you need an answer about, I'll be happy to do what I can to help you and just call the office.
if we're looking at a, at a checklist, I'd say that we've got number one, education. Number two, how long. Number three, what the planner did before becoming a planner. Number four, ask to see a sample financial plan. Number five, what are the areas of expertise? Number six, verify that the planner has a close working relationship with accountants, attorneys, and other competent professionals. Financial planning practitioners are generalists and may also be specialists in certain areas, but you ought to check references of professionals that they're working with. That'd be number six. And Doug, isn't it helpful also to find out what type of clientele the practitioner serves? I think that's good. Number seven, Lynn, what type of clientele? It's not uncommon for some planners to work specifically with particular professional groups or income levels or age groups. I know in our practice, there are certain types of people that we do not work with. And it's very important for people that are looking for planners to find out Will the practitioner with whom you're talking work directly with you, or will you be working with an associate handling the account, right? That's an important question, Lynn. Find out. Is he going to be doing the work directly for you, or will he be giving your account to someone else? I've been asked that question many times through the years. How do I know that you'll be doing my planning, or will you just be giving me to an assistant or someone? Okay. And another question I think people should ask is, how will the practitioner keep you informed of new financial information, correct? either through newsletters, seminars, telephone, letter, or personal meetings? Well, you know, Lynn, this is the matter of what we call status reports. Right. Uh, I think herein is a very big lack of understanding of people. When they go to see a planner, they don't realize that the initial set of meetings is not as important to them as what's going to happen afterwards. So as to see the sample reports of what's going to happen after the planning has got started. How will the planner provide you with ongoing reports and how will the planner get paid for these ongoing reports? And one of the practitioner's roles may be to suggest financial products to implement your plan. Will the planner provide generic or specific investment advice, right? And who's going to do the research? Who's going to go ahead and actually do the analysis on the products that are recommended? And then I think a very crucial issue to ask is, does the practitioner have any vested interest in any of the products that he recommends? And also, people need to find out how the financial planning practitioner is compensated and whether or not there is a charge for the plan or for periodic reviews as well as revisions, right? That's right. This is the most important thing, Lynn. Financial planning practitioners are compensated in one of two ways, either fee-only or fee commission. Now, some people say they are planners and they work on commission-only arrangements, but to me, that's a basic sales approach. If you're doing something for free and the goal is to sell some products, that's not real financial planning. But there are planners that work on a fee-only or a reduced fee arrangement, and you need to be very clear on how the fee structure works, whether you are paying your planner on a fee-only arrangement and then you'll take his or her advice and go to another broker or someone to do the investments and the commissions will be paid to the other individual, or whether the planner will be working on a fee commission arrangement and how much he's going to get paid. So you, you need to really be comfortable that the planner is being uh, open and honest with you about how he's being compensated and that he's being compensated properly. You don't want someone who is not being paid well for the services or you're not going to get any service. Correct. And it's important, too, Doug, as people are looking for planners, uh, it's one thing to, to be checking out the practitioner that you're interested in working with, but also to sit down and get that notebook out and start jotting questions down that are on your minds or concerns that you have regarding your own situation, correct? You're right, Lynn. You need to meet with your planner ahead of time, bring a list of questions, get some references, client references, call clients that they're working with, see a sample financial plan, get comfortable that this is the person you work, and then go into it 100% realizing that this is a person that has a lot of influence over your financial future. You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF. Doug, what's new in the area of tax planning? Well, Lynn, give and you shall receive. A tax deduction, that is. Uncle Sam encourages generosity by subsidizing it. Your write-off begins with the first dollar you give if you itemize your deductions. To be deductible, your gift has to go to a nonprofit, religious, educational, or charitable group 
that meets IRS standards. If you are uncertain whether an organization is approved by the IRS, you may check with the IRS or obtain IRS Publication Number 78. Donating appreciated property, such as stocks or real estate, is often the best option. Not only do you take an income tax deduction for the full value of your contribution, but the tax-exempt recipient pays no capital gains tax when the property is sold. There is a limit to how much can be deducted in a single year. You can claim charitable contribution deductions up to 30% of your adjusted gross income without worrying about the twists and turns of the IRS limits. The rules are complicated, so if your generosity exceeds that level, you may need professional advice to structure your gifts for the best tax outcome. Your certified financial planner can also help you recompensate your children for the portion of your legacy that you give to charity. One option is life insurance for the amount that you give away. Your heirs should take out the policy on your life, but you could give them the money to pay the premiums. Select the strategy with your certified financial planner. Make sure your gift doesn't force you to pay the alternative minimum tax. Discuss your benefits of using a gift annuity or a pooled income fund. Or maybe you need a charitable lead trust, a life estate agreement, a bargain sale, or a life insurance gift. The right strategies for you will depend on what you want to donate, how much it's worth, and whether you want to receive income for your generosity. If you've been wondering about charitable contributions, I hope my comments have helped. Remember, seek competent financial advice, and if you have any financial questions, just give me a call at 872-7000. That's 872-7000. And remember, your financial future is at stake. Another interesting topic has to do with nest eggs, Social Security, and Roth conversions. Say someone has a tax-deferred account, a non-Roth, okay, with a contribution value, meaning that's what they contributed, of about 200000 and a current value of 600000 What if the entire 600000 was placed in a federal and state tax-free municipal bond for one year and then withdrawn? Would there be taxes on the $400,000 gain, even though it is withdrawn from a tax-free investment? You would not, you would not uh, imagine how many people ask me the same question. Can I go ahead and put my investments in my IRA in something tax-free, such as a municipal bond, uh-huh. and then when I withdraw it out, not have to pay tax? Sorry, it isn't possible to escape taxation on withdrawals from an IRA by temporarily investing the money in tax-free munis. It doesn't matter what's going on inside the IRA. Whatever comes out of the IRA, Deborah, is going to be taxable. End of story. Yes, yes. So an IRA is like a tax-deferred vehicle, but eventually, when money flows out as income, what's going to happen? You're going to pay tax. Let's take another call, Doug. Hi, John. This is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you? I just wanted to ask you about the revocable trust. Uh, I have a an aunt who is setting up a, a revocable trust, mm-hmm. and uh, I would be the trustee. Okay. And I was just wondering. We've been to an attorney, but he didn't. Uh, he wasn't too good at explaining things that, uh, about the thing. Then why are you using him? <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the one of the things you want to watch out for in uh, in in having estate documents produced is you want to always understand everything. And in my opinion, if the attorney can't explain to you what he is charging you to produce, then you probably need to see another attorney. Let's get to the specifics of your aunt. How old is she? Uh, ninety-two. She's ninety-two years old. And what's the size of her estate? Uh, it's about. Uh Close to five hundred thousand. Five hundred thousand dollars. All right. And who's the beneficiary? Oh, I, I am. Okay. Now, if her estate, and by the way, what is what's in we the? We want est- to avoid probate. Okay. Let's go on a little further. Uh, is is it everything in the state of North Carolina? Yes. Is it in uh, what kind of assets? Are they stocks and bonds and stocks cash? Stocks and bonds. How about real estate? Uh, very little real estate, just a home. Okay. The, uh, the, the avoidance of probate is, uh, depending on who you talk to, it may or may not be a very severe issue. It may be a bugaboo that, uh, that, 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 that you need to sort of look a little further at and get a quote on how much would be the probate expenses that an attorney would charge you 
to go ahead and take the estate through probate. But it's true. If you create a revocable living trust, what you do is you create an entity, just like a corporation, and then your aunt gives away everything to this corporation, which we call a trust. Right. And this trust, uh, we will for the, si- for the moment say that it's a living trust because it's being created during her lifetime. Yes. Other kinds of trust are testamentary trust, and all trusts break into those two broad categories, living trust or testamentary trust. Many times we write testamentary trust language into living trust documents, but a testamentary trust is one that begins its existence at death. On the other hand, this is a living trust. And then all trusts also are either revocable or irrevocable. And the one that your mother, that your aunt is trying to do is a revocable living trust. It doesn't have to be. Right. That that simply says that she's reserving the right to change her mind and collapse this thing. Okay, so that's the revocable living trust in terms of what it is. Now, what happens next is, and why you do it, she then wants to go ahead and give everything she owns into the name of this trust. Yes. Every trust has four players. There is the donor. That's the one who sets it up and gives stuff to it. That's your aunt. Every trust has a trustee. That's the, tr- that's the person who runs the show. Usually... We make the trustee the same person as the donor, but in very senior citizens, we choose someone else. But the trustee is the one who runs the trust. And the third party is the beneficiary of the income, called the income beneficiary. And that's the one that the trustee pays income to. And the fourth party is the remainder beneficiary, and that's the one who gets it at the end when the trust is over. The numbers to call during the week at the office are... Area code 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Okay. Now, what you are doing when, when you create a revocable living trust is your aunt's going to give everything to this trust. And so the deeds will have to be transferred and everything will be moved into the name of the trust. And if you're the trustee, then you're the one that she'll be giving it to. But she's reserving the right to revoke it and change her mind and take it back. Yes. Now, when I told you everything to me, there's an exception of about fifty thousand dollars that goes to the housekeeper and the uh, man who cuts the yard and uh, you know cleans, does the odd jobs. Okay. Well, that doesn't. That's the only uh, only request she wants to. Well, understand that the revocable living trust is an entity that goes for a period of time, and in this kind of time, it's going to go for the life of your aunt, just like a corporation. But in this trust document that describes what happens, there are two parts to it, basically. One part describes what happens while the trust is in existence during her lifetime. Yes. The other part is just like a will. Right. It says who gets what when the trust is over. Okay. And in that part of the trust document... It's identical to the will. It, as a matter of fact, it takes the place of the will in many cases. So the, the housekeeper gets X amount, and you get X amount, and Jim okay. gets X amount, and so forth. So those are the, the will provisions in the revocable living trust. The most important thing, however, the most important reason that you would do a revocable living trust for a person uh, 92 is for incapacitation. If indeed she becomes incapacitated, Now there is someone that can go ahead and take care of her affairs for her. And that's why, that's the main reason a person sets up a revocable living trust is to provide for incapacitation. Some people try and do this with a power of attorney, but powers of attorney don't often work. But the revocable living trust removes that problem. Right. Now you're the trustee, and we set up a sequence of trustees. Uh... Very often, people look for the revocable living trust as being um, a way to avoid estate taxes, but it will not avoid the estate taxes. Yes. The principal reason is the avoidance of, uh, in, or the, the solving the problem of incapacitation. The second reason that people would do this is the time of probate. Uh, at the moment of her death, then you don't have to go through a nine-month waiting period to go through probate. The trustee simply distributes to whomever the instructions are to distribute, which in this case would be yourself. 
I see. So I'm better off going with the re uh, revocable, right? Yes, you are. The only thing is that uh, you should probably make sure you can customize these things and put nice little delicate features into them. Uh, so you want to use an attorney who is creating a revocable living trust uh, that knows what he's doing and knows. In other words, unfortunately, there's yeah. a lot of computer softwares that you can just print these things out. I'm afraid that's what I've uh, gotten involved with. Uh, yeah, and, and, and that's probably not the way that you want to go. If you will call my office during the week, it might do well to just to set up a meeting. If you want, I'd be happy to meet with you and go over what she's got. Or just simply, I could recommend a couple of attorneys in town that specialize in this area. Well, I'll call your office. Uh, looks like I should have come to you to begin with, so I'll give you a ring this week. Right. Thank you, John. And our number in Raleigh is 872-7000. That's USA 7000. And, and start writing down your questions. And then when if you meet with you know Doug or another financial planner, then that individual should be able to address your questions. Good enough. And how long does it take to set this up? Well, a good a, a good attorney can usually do those in about a week, do a week to two. Yeah. Okay, I'll check with you this week then. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF. Doug, what's new in the area of investment planning? Well, then I think uh, a couple of things are interesting. I think the big thing is to look at mutual funds and to realize in the way of investments and investment planning that people don't understand much about mutual funds. And I think one of the big questions people are confused about is, can a mutual fund go broke? I think a lot of people wonder, or some people have wondered, what happens if my mutual fund goes broke? I've heard that well, question. Well, can it go broke? <laughs> yeah. Well, a mutual fund's assets can and will fluctuate in value, but the liabilities, that means what it owes plus the shareholder's equity, can never exceed its assets, so the mutual fund can't go broke, Linda. A mutual fund can't go broke. Well, Doug, another question that uh, some have is, what happens if the fund sponsor goes bankrupt? Um, will I lose my money, uh, you know, when the bankrupt company is a private company and can't obtain the types of information that routinely would be available about publicly traded companies? Well, in the financial difficulties of the fund's sponsor or advisor uh, have no relationship to the assets in your mutual fund, which is organized as a separate company. No creditor of an investment advisor or sponsor would have any recourse to any assets in the mutual fund to meet their obligations, so there really is no relationship. And I guess most important of all is under the Investment Company Act of 1940, mutual funds are subject to very strict requirements governing custody of their securities and other investments. Most funds use bank custodians, and the standard mutual fund bank custody agreement is far more elaborate and more specific than the typical bank custody agreement for other clients. So uh, there really is not an issue there. Doug, what about fraud? Can the fund managers take a person's money? Well, of course, dishonesty can occur in any business. But again, the Investment Company Act of 1940 provides a variety of very effective safeguards for investors. In order to protect against fraud, the 1940 Act subjects the advisor to many legal restrictions, especially regarding transactions between itself and the fund it advises and joint transactions. And quite frankly, Linda, I have never heard of any case in any mutual fund where there has been fraud. Doug, and what happens if the broker-dealer is holding uh, some mutual fund shares in street name or shareholder name and the broker-dealer firm goes bankrupt? Is a person likely to lose their money? Well, no one can guarantee the net asset value of a stock or a bond fund. However, your mutual fund shares are safe. That's for sure. Once again, the assets in the mutual fund belong to the mutual fund shareholder, not to the brokerage firm. So let's say that you've got your mutual fund shares held through any of the firms out there the assets in that fund do not belong to the brokerage firm. They belong to you, the shareholder, even though they're held in street name. And even if your mutual fund shares are held in street name, if your broker-dealer is insured by SIPC, then these shares, including money market mutual fund shares, are protected just as any other individual securities. Now, there's another question that comes up uh, from time to time when people do call me uh, at the office. And some people wonder about the hidden costs that are found, you know, in wrap accounts? Well, the wrap account issue is a very, very confusing issue, a hot issue, and one that people want to know about with regard to the world of investments. And really, do you understand what a wrap account is, Linda, how it works? Maybe you can explain it. All right. 
A wrap account is where you go ahead and you, instead of uh, agreeing to pay commissions to a brokerage firm, the brokerage firm agrees to go ahead for a flat fee, and it's usually anywhere between 1% and 3%, and most of the time it's 2% to 3% of your money or of what's in your account. They will buy and sell for you through the year and charge no commissions. There have been a number of articles trying to expose the hidden fees in the wrap accounts. I'm really not very much in favor of wrap accounts, and I don't like them very much. I think they're quite expensive. I know individual investors have pumped more than $40 billion into wrap accounts in recent years, and they are one of the hottest investment products on Wall Street, but I really don't like them. Uh, you've got the annual fee, and then in addition to the annual fee, you've got uh, a lot of hidden costs there. And if you look at the true cost of a wrap account, investors could easily be paying the equivalent of 5% of their assets, but that's not the same as a 5% commission on a mutual fund. That's 5% every single year every year every year as opposed to a mutual fund where you pay your commission your load one time and that's it well doug and you're not necessarily getting advice along the way are you no no a wrap account is not an advice account it's basically you're handing over your money on a discretionary basis well there are some i shouldn't say they're not always discretionary but the arrangement is basically on whether to pay commissions or whether to pay a one-time uh annual well it's not one time but an annual fee and certainly, if you are listening uh, this evening and you have your money in a wrap account, maybe you should take a look at whether this is the best uh, arrangement for you. Right, Doug? And have you done some serious financial planning? Have you jotted down the questions that uh, are, have been on your mind for a time that maybe your broker hasn't been able to answer? Uh, sometimes people have questions about estate planning and tax issues and uh, retirement issues. Right, Doug? That's right. Simply paying a wrap fee on a you know annual basis uh, really doesn't get you anywhere does it Doug No it really doesn't Linda the the whole view of focusing on trying to save money that way generally in my opinion turns out to be more expensive rather than less expensive Well Doug what's new in the area of retirement planning Well Linda as people are laid off or people are encouraged to retire early or people reach retirement they're generally given a package the offer of a package Typically, your package comes like this. You get the choice of a lifetime income stream or a lump sum. Okay, so the first option they usually give you is a lifetime income check and nothing left over after you die. It's just a check for the rest of your life and maybe for the rest of your spouse's life. Then they give you a second choice. They're going to give you a lump sum if you don't want that check. Now, the lump sum will depend upon how long you've worked there and so on. How do you protect those funds from having to pay any taxes, if at all possible? You can pay no taxes on the lump sum distribution, and you can roll the whole amount over into what we call an IRA rollover account. That's an IRA rollover account. It's just like the IRA that you set up, but you can do the rollover, and you pay no taxes, and now the whole lump sum goes over there, and now you can invest it over there as you please then you pay taxes on the money as it comes out and as you choose to take it out of your IRA. Does it matter if a person does the rollover to a bank or to a mutual fund or to an insurance company? Does it matter where that money goes? It matters very much. It matters very much. Now, here you have to realize that somebody is out there with a sales pitch to hand you. And where that money goes, you're subject or not subject to a sales pitch. For example, let's say you do the rollover to a bank. You do the IRA rollover to the bank. Well, the bank is then going to say, by the way, now that the money is there, you got to put it somewhere in that account. How would you like to put it in our CDs? <clears throat> or how would you like our discount broker to help you? And so on. So you're basically a captive now when you choose putting it over to a bank to the particular products that bank has to offer. You can do a rollover to a mutual fund. By the same token, there are mutual funds that act as the IRA rollover trustee. And again, you're subject to that mutual fund. You're a captive and you're buying their product once you roll the money over there. What you want to do is you want to select an independent trustee to roll it over oh. to who has no products whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And then the money is over there. And then you tell that trustee what investments you want from the whole world of investments out there. You need to work with a financial advisor such as myself or some financial planner to help you select investments. But the trustee should have no proprietary, no products at all to sell. So all they I do see. is report to the IRS. 
that the money got over there and no taxes should be withheld. Okay. That okay. Sounds great. About the taxes, aren't you going to pay now or pay later? Does it matter either way? No, it makes a big difference as a matter of fact. Look here. Let's say you take the lump sum and you pay $50,000 in taxes. Right. All right. And let's say you took $200,000 of lump sum. You got $150,000 after you pay your taxes. That $150,000 is going to give you, let's say, $15,000 a year in income, 10% of $150,000, $15,000 a year in income. All right. Suppose, however, you take the rollover and roll two hundred over. Your $200,000 is all over there making, let's say, $20,000 a year. You've got the whole thing making for you all along. So it makes a big difference whether you... Uh, whether you pay the taxes or not. No, you don't pay it. The only way it would make sense if you were to say, I'm going to pay it eventually down the road is if I took the whole lump out of the IRA and then paid it. Yes, but nobody's going to do that. I wouldn't let them do it if they were my clients. Okay, that sounds great. And if this sounds familiar to your situation, call the office in Raleigh at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. There are other issues that have to do with IRAs. And that's usually, a, uh, I would say, a lot of the conversation um, is what to do with the IRA. Now that I've accumulated the IRA, and there was even a, a writer who wrote in, a, a, I guess a reader who wrote in with a question, and they had said they'd reached the age where the Internal Revenue Service is looking for its share of taxes from their IRA. And that's really how it feels, if you, especially if you don't need it as an income. And they said, I have looked into how best to withdraw from the IRA and yet maintain an investment strategy. Should I sell off stocks or mutual funds? One suggestion I have read is to reinvest withdrawals in income generating stocks. And Doug, this is a typical question. Matter of fact, the clients who were in on uh, Thursday, they asked, I've accumulated uh, a good deal amount in my IRA. How do I withdraw from it? How do I... Uh, take out what is now being required of me now that I'm 70 or 70 and a half. Yeah, Deborah, I'm glad you brought that up because many people, as they're going through their aging years between the 50s and the 70s, they know that there is this magical number. They're not sure whether it's age 70 or 71 or 69, but they know something has to happen then. And when it does happen, then we come to the question of, well, how do we do it? What do we do? What are all the decisions? And very often I hear in the office, the clients that say, you mean I got to take it out? I don't need it. I, right. I don't need it. But, but that's exactly right. You must make a required minimum distribution by the time you reach 70 and a half years old, or you're going to trigger a 50% tax penalty. On but the amount that's not withdrawn. On that, the amount that's that. wa- that's right, Deborah. Right. That's not withdrawn. But then the question is, well, if I got all these investments inside my IRA, let's say you've got a million dollars that's accumulated all these years in your IRA, and they're in mutual funds of stocks and mutual funds of bonds and so forth. Then comes the question, well, what do I what do I sell to get that money out to avoid the penalty and get that? required minimum distribution. That's a very important thing uh, because that's called asset allocation, keeping the portfolio balanced. Once we've made that decision, then we know what to sell inside the IRA to get the money to come out as the required minimum distribution. But then comes the question, well, what do I do with it? I don't need it. And of course, the worst thing you can do when it comes out is to put it in your bank account and just and, leave it. Right, right. Yeah, that, Because uh, if, if it's truly not, and this would be the, the situation where someone's not needing it for living expenses. Exactly. If it's not needed for living expenses, this income stream that we're being taxed on could be then reinvested in the other portfolio, your personal portfolio. And that's what confuses many people. A lot of people say, I'll just reinvest it into the IRA, but you can't. Right. Once it comes out. Once it comes out, you have created a tax liability. There's no way to avoid that tax, but you can go ahead and get it invested again in your non-retirement portfolio. And when you look at the two of them as two pockets to one pair of pants, the whole, let's say that you have a million dollars of a portfolio that's not retirement money, and you've got a million dollars in an IRA, and you've reached 70 and a half. Well, really, your portfolio is $2 million. million. That's That's right. right. Mm -hmm. So as we move money out 
to to avoid the the tax penalty. penalty from the IRS, we need to consider how to get the money into the other portfolio in such a way that the two are still balanced properly. And I think therein you can do some very interesting compounding. You can protect yourself from all the other what ifs that happen in the investment world that people are worried about. And this whole uh, need to have to take out your RMD, it shouldn't by itself trigger a radical rethinking of investment strategy. Because really, just like you were saying, Doug, it does your IRA and your non-retirement assets are one overall portfolio. There are ways that other financial advisors recommend that I don't recommend. And they try to look at, well, what about the taxable investments inside the IRA and the non-taxable investments outside. I really don't like that approach. I think what needs to be done is an overall asset allocation model that controls the client's world, just like two pockets to one pair of pants. There's no real difference when you look at it that way. And we will not let the tax tail wag the investment dog. So that's my last The thing that I want to say tonight, I think, on how to draw down the IRA using the required minimum distribution. I will say this. The IRS computes it in such a way that each year that RMD gets bigger and bigger because you're supposed to have one year less to live. And you're supposed to, according to their actuarial table, draw it down to zero by the time you die. If you do it properly, and we have seen many cases where it actually gets bigger it doesn't draw down. That's right. And you leave your children or your wife if she is the second to die. But you leave the, that IRA bigger even after you've been taking out that required minimum. You know, Doug, I just thought of another thing, too, is if you're a listener and you are uh, in your own situation, have more than one IRA Ooh. or you have an IRA and a 401k mm-hmm. uh, and you haven't rolled it over to your IRA, mm-hmm. anything that is required the IRA is different than the 401k. It is. Only while the, you're working and still contributing to the 401k. But as soon as you retire, you're going to have that required minimum distribution. That's right. And if you don't have all of your retirement assets in one retirement account, one, Consolidated. Large, mm-hmm. one large IRA, you really need to be cognizant that the RMD will need to be figure, figured on each one of those you know, you, fa- you can face you a can big face. tax penalty thinking you did it right on one of your IRAs, but you missed a 401k. Right. Much better to do it in one, as Linda said, consolidated IRA rollover account and with a financial planner such as ourselves in charge of the whole thing. So to make sure you're not getting in trouble. I agree with you, Doug. Therein is the importance of working with a certified financial planner, a competent advisor, You know, Doug, uh, financial planning isn't just investments. What do I do with my investments? But financial planning covers so many aspects of a person's financial world. And, you know, if you're a widow out there, if you've recently lost your spouse, or if you're a widower and you've lost your wife, or maybe you have uh, a loved one that is facing an illness at the present time, And, you know, maybe you have some questions about what to do when your spouse passes away. Or maybe you've just inherited a farm or some some stocks or some real estate. And you're just confused about how does this all fit in my world? We are here to assist you. And I would say, uh, just like the clients who came in on Friday, if you are a young person, a young couple thinking, I really want to uh, take my good fortune of a high income and maximize my years. You know, there are a lot of people who are in their 30s and 40s who know that their parents set a good example and that other people um, contributed their, uh, to their own success and doing well, whether it's a, an employer that gave you a great job and, and you're making more than you ever dreamed. Now is the time to get serious about really instituting those good habits so that you look back after you've had this accumulation and you have a real plan. You know where you're going at 40. So when 60 comes, you're prepared. This exactly. was all part of the plan. And, uh, you know, I'm finding more and more people, um, 
who who are very thankful for a high income in their 30s and 40s and don't want to waste it. Very well said, Deborah. You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF. Doris, this is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner. How can I help you? I have a house and it has quite a large mortgage. Okay. How big is the mortgage? 231. Okay. The problem is it isn't selling and I want to move away. I've considered a charitable remainder trust, but uh-huh. I have been told by a CPA that that would mean that I would have to put 231 in cash and the house into such a trust. Uh-huh. Well, no, he's not exactly correct. What you have to do is you pay off the mortgage first. You can't transfer a mortgaged property into a charitable trust. But there are ways around that. But he's right. You, you have to pay off the trust, the mortgage first, then transfer it in. How much do you have in liquid assets altogether? All of your other assets that are liquid? It's around 800000 And what would the house sell for under a fire sale if there was no mortgage? Maybe two seventy. Okay. Number one, we need to move about $450,000 of your liquid assets into mutual funds. They can be very safe, conservative mutual funds. We can put those mutual funds in street name through a brokerage account, and you can immediately write a check for 230000 against them. You are basically borrowing from yourself, no application, no uh, suitability, no anything. You take that $231,000 and you pay off the mortgage. You transfer the house, which is now mortgage-free, into a charitable remainder unit trust. You let the trust go ahead and sell the property immediately for as long as, as little as it, uh, whatever it will bring. If it brings 275000 that's wonderful. If it brings $275,000, then you have it start paying you back immediately. It pays you back monthly, and it can pay you back because all that cash will be sitting in the trust. That $275,000 sitting in the trust can go ahead and pay you maybe 24000 a year or 2000 a month. That money, as it comes back to you immediately, can be used to go right back over to your margin account at your mor- uh, against your mutual funds. In the meantime, your mutual funds will also be producing income for you to live on. And finally, the capital gains will not be an issue because you will be given a charitable deduction of about $70,000 for making the transfer of the property into the charitable trust. I'll make an appointment so I can come and see you. All right. It can all be done, though. Thanks, Doris. Thank you. Thank you Doris. Right. That number to call is 8727000 if you're in the Raleigh area. You know, I'm really, I'm sort of amazed sometimes at the amount of half-knowledge that's out there. I'm really glad that Doris was able to know that there is such a strategy of selling something tax-free. That's very good, by using the charitable trust. And we have done these charitable trusts now since 1990, I think was the first one we did. Right, Linda? But on the other hand, a half-knowledge, a limited amount of knowledge also can hurt. Now, here, she was exactly right. You can sell anything you want free of all capital gains taxes if you first gift it into a charitable trust. That's exactly right. And she's also right that you cannot go ahead and put something with a mortgage into a charitable trust. But you can slice the loaf a lot of ways to get exactly what you want. So first what we have to do, as in her case, first we have to go ahead and we have to get the mortgage paid off. Well, normally you would say, well, doesn't that mean I have to borrow some more money by maybe taking a mortgage on my home and using that money to pay off the other? No, 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 you don't have to. Here we simply move in personal investments into a brokerage account and then we borrow from ourselves. So we have no real debt that we have outstanding there. That puts the house into the charitable trust. The charitable trust can sell the house tax-free the charitable trust starts paying back income. Which can pay off the Which can pledge, pay off. That's exactly, that's exactly right. So half knowledge can 
uh, be very dangerous if you don't know the solution. But I'm really glad uh, that that came up. That reminds me of a number of half knowledges that are out there. <laughs> and the biggest one I think that is is right now is uh, or topical for right now is Social Security. What's you know, the, to wait or to not wait. That's right, Deborah. That's exactly right. What do most people think when they think about taking Social Security? They usually think that they should wait until. Uh, if, as long as they don't need it to live off of, they think, well, I should wait and take it as late as possible. And so often I hear people in my office say, well, yeah, I've, I, I was told that every year that I wait after 62, it grows at 8%. And so I can get a bigger and bigger check. Right. Therefore, I should wait. Well, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes that's not the best answer. Sometimes that is the worst answer because... If you take that early check, even when you're age 62 at the reduced rate, and you can get that invested, then you may end up with much more. Now, if you have to take your Social Security at 70, and if you were to take it at 62, that's an extra eight years. It is. Almost a whole decade. It is. So if it's working, it'd be kind of like taking the RMD from your IRA we were speaking about and putting that into the personal portfolio. That's exactly right, Deborah. Just imagine that investment portfolio growing for the next eight years and then compare the two, which we do many a time, and we see, oh, worst thing you could have done was to wait. Much better to take it and get it invested. Now, if you have to spend it, then there's a whole new set of parameters and decisions. And there are software tools. Uh, of course, in our office, we Lots have our, yeah, we have our own analyses that we do to advise the client which way does it work better for the and client. And that's really um, something that you speak to often, which is there are a lot of um, pieces of information out there that are supposed to be one size fits all. Like, oh, you should wait to take your Social Security as late as possible. That's counter to financial planning, which is personal, individual, based on your particular situation your particular needs and uh, desires. Right. So what you're saying, Debs, is there's not a one-size-fits-all. Exactly. It just, it, it can't work that way. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Money Matters with the Lewises, Doug, Linda, and Deborah. You can listen to our podcast online at WPTF.com. Join us next Saturday and Sunday at 6 p.m. on WPTF. Call us to set your appointment this week, 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. You've been listening to Money Matters with the Lewis family, Doug, Linda, and Deborah. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, call Doug, Linda, or Deborah in Raleigh at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Or go to DougAndLinda.com and listen again next Sunday at 6 p.m. for more Money Matters with the Lewis family on News Radio 680 WPTF.